Hi, welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I am the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I invite you to check out over 4,000 of my written reviews. You can read there anytime. Quipster.net is where to go. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. While you're there, I do encourage you to check out my other podcast called the Quipster Film Review Podcast, covering films that are brand new out in movie theaters or new to streaming. Check that out at Quipster.net. Today I'm going to be looking at the third of the three-part series, looking at Highway to Hell, or Roadkill, or whatever you want to call it, films in which there is murder out there on the road. And today we're going to end it with a film that was done by the same screenwriter as the previous film, Eric Red. He wrote The Hitcher, and now we're going to be looking at his next film called Near Dark. It came out in 1987. It's an R-rated film. It does have disturbing images, violence, some gore, sensuality, and language. The runtime is an hour and 35 minutes. Adrian Pazdar is the main star, along with Jenny Wright, Lance Henriksen, Bill Paxton, Jeanette Goldstein, Tim Thomerson, and Joshua John Miller. The director is Catherine Bigelow. Yes, the Oscar-winning Catherine Bigelow, at least later in life. She writes the screenplay along with the aforementioned Eric Red. Now, in 1987, you would see two big vampire movies that were released. There was Near Dark and The Lost Boys. And while The Lost Boys would earn the money and the fan base, it is Near Dark that won the respect of the critics and a lot of film buffs in the end. It was released by a dying distribution company in DEG, that's De Laurentiis Entertainment Group. Their financial woes forced an accelerated shooting schedule that hampered the production, and Near Dark just did not have the benefit of good marketing or a great release strategy when it was available to the public, and that caused it to be removed from theaters shortly after it opened. Actually, it was only out there for a couple of weeks. And thanks to home video, it ended up gaining a cult following among many. And today, it is considered a small-scale cult favorite among lovers of the vampire genre films in particular. Now, it's altogether a different kind of vampire film. In fact, there's no mention of the word vampire within the film itself. It seems to kind of exist in this world that has no notion of vampires. And they fuse Western styles with modern action pieces forming this hybrid form of feminist, yet somehow still muscular, as nearly all of Bigelow's films tended to be. This horror-slash-thriller-slash-action-slash-romance-slash-western, it really had not been seen before, at least not in this context. Now, in a film that toys with upending gender and sexuality roles, Adrian Pazdar stars as Caleb Colton, Caleb is a young and somewhat passive small-town guy in Oklahoma who has his eyes set on a visiting mysterious boyish beauty named May, played by Jenny Wright. Caleb and May spend the night talking and flirting, but May has to make it home before the sun comes up, for reasons that are not very clear to Caleb. Before the end of the evening, May ends up biting Caleb on the neck although she doesn't really drink his blood, and that sets forth this reaction in Caleb's body that makes him very strong, very agile, and he ends up starting to fry up in the direct sunlight, and he starts to crave human blood himself. Before Caleb can get home, he ends up getting adopted by his new family, this clan of immortals with the same condition that he has, although they aren't really taking too kindly to May's decision to turn Caleb into one of them, especially since she has to feed him from her own blood, because Caleb does not want to kill other humans like the others, but 
to be part of them, he has to, and he can't survive on his own without it. So tensions end up flaring within the group, as well as within Caleb himself, as to what the proper thing to do will be. Now, the origin of Near Dark started with this idea between up-and-coming director Catherine Bigelow. This was her first solo effort as a director. She did co-direct a film back in 1981 called The Loveless. Bigelow had come into the world of filmmaking by way of art and painting, and she ended up teaming up with up-and-coming screenwriter Eric Redd. He penned The Hitcher just the year before, and they wanted to make a Western. However, the Western genre was out of vogue at the time, so financing was difficult to obtain for a Western without having the clout within the genre of someone like Clint Eastwood on board. So under the suggestion of James Cameron, they decided to mash their ideas up by combining the Western with another genre more in line with what audiences had wanted to see at the time, namely a horror film, though one still retaining its Western roots at its core. It also encroaches into other territories, including gothic melodrama, part innocent and part erotic love story, intense action, and some slick thrills. In preparation, Bigelow read Bram Stoker's Dracula, as well as Anne Rice's interview with the vampire for inspiration on how she wanted to proceed with this vampire undertaking. The choice to leave out the word vampire was deliberate. They felt that they were doing a reinvention of the genre. They did not want to get tied down with the preconceived notions and the mythology of other properties where it might be expected that these vampires should have sharp fangs or turn into bats or be afraid of crosses or garlic or any of that stuff. They wanted to do it the way that they saw fit. And despite Catherine Bigelow's ideas and her prior experience as a co-director, one of the producers who was interested in purchasing her script said that he would take it, but he wasn't really keen on attaching her as director. Bigelow, though, stood her ground. She said the script was off the table if she was not going to direct. And after stewing on it for a full day, that producer agreed to this deal, but he said he reserved the right to replace her if he felt that she didn't know what she was doing. She was never replaced, by the way. Not then, and not ever since. Near Dark, I would say, is no masterpiece by any means. But I do think that it's ingenious within its genre. It definitely offers a new spin on this type of film that had been long-cycled repetitively to the point of farce. And what immediately sets Near Dark apart from other vampire films is that of solid character development. We see and we recognize the need for the vampires to practice self-preservation, and yet we also know that they are bad, not because they kill, but because they relish it. They invent new ways to entertain themselves with every slaughter, and meanwhile, the people that they kill are not just nameless fodder. Each scene is set up to show that there is great fear, there's tragedy involved in the killings, and that makes such scenes as this bar scene where each patron and employee is slaughtered in turn frightening because we see the real terror in every victim's eyes. Now, Near Dark marked the second film for writer-director Catherine Bigelow. She was a friend, and she ended up becoming a future wife, at least in 1989, very briefly, just a couple of years, of director James Cameron. The Cameron influence can be seen not only in the action pieces, but also in the cast. Three of the vampires, Lance Henriksen, Bill Paxton, and Jeanette Goldstein, are actors that were just featured in James Cameron's film from the year before, Aliens. And they ended up being, at one time or another, in a Terminator film that was directed by him. Speaking of Terminator and Aliens, Michael Bean was also offered a role. He was going to play the role of Jesse, which ended up going to Lance Henriksen. He declined, though, because he didn't understand the script at all. He claims he was probably drunk at the time. Bean would go on to say that he regretted turning the role down, especially after he saw how good the film 
would end up being. Despite their screenwriting credits, Bigelow encouraged her cast to come up with their own backstories for their characters and to improvise their dialogue as they saw fit in order to accommodate those narratives. A little bit of trivia here, an homage in Near Dark is paid to Aliens by being the movie that is featured on the billboard of this movie theater that's in town, although this may cause one to wonder why the characters in this film are not recognized as the actors in that popular film among the people that they meet around the town. Now, this is a very stylish film. Near Dark has a synth soundtrack by Tangerine Dream. It keeps the tone very modern, at least contemporary to the 1980s. Even if the tempo goes for a slightly older vibe, Near Dark benefits from a strong and motley set of actors who each seem to be different than the other, but that aspect does end up working well for the movie. And you consider that everyone comes from different generations, despite their age on the outside. The character of Homer here, played by a young Joshua Miller, he's actually quite old, but he looks like he has the body of a 10-year-old boy. The types range from benign and kind, such as the main love interest in May, to downright scary, especially Bill Paxton in his psychotically crazed performance as the toxically obnoxious Severin, who seems to relish his time to commit gory kills. Near Dark refreshingly shows that even among this vampire clan, the personalities are every bit as varied as a random collection of people would be, even though they can select their own humans to turn and become part of their vampire family. Now, as much as I enjoy Near Dark in many aspects, I would not say everything in this film works for me. It does come off a bit stiff at times in terms of the character interactions and some of the staging. The main stars, Pazder and Wright, they're not the most interesting characters to follow. The notion that vampirism might also have a cure is also presented in a fashion that seems a little bit too convenient from a plot standpoint. When you learn what that might be, you would think that surely that would have been attempted by this clan and maybe other clans long ago. This is also a film that has a lot of big ideas that don't quite make sense to ponder with any kind of scrutiny. One is the notion that they could continue this killing spree night after night across America without being caught or even suspected for decades, if not centuries. That seems kind of a stretch, especially when you see just how careless and open that they can be in the hunt for fresh blood. And there's also this scene set in the dead of night, followed by the brightness of daylight a few minutes later. Somehow in the editing, they were unable to properly give the passage of time that feels necessary in order to avoid taking viewers out of the movie to contemplate the contrivances of having it absolutely pitch black outside in one scene, and then a couple of minutes later, it's bright as can be. But I would say all of these, they're kind of nitpicky because the overall thrust of the story still holds true. Near Dark was shot with a budget of about 5 to $6 million dollars, it ended up failing to catch fire at the box office, unfortunately. It barely earned half of that back in return theatrically. And part of the reason is the lack of theaters that were showing the film. DEG could not roll it out to many theaters, especially with the depictions of sadistic violence that were perpetrated by this family of serial killers were meant to sympathize with to a certain extent. It also comes too late to the party. There was already a popular vampire film released, in 1987, I mentioned it at the beginning of this review, The Lost Boys. The Lost Boys played in over twice as many theaters as close as a month before the release date of Near Dark. People were sated by that point for their vampire cinema. Now, the violence within Near Dark also rankled censors in world markets, and that hampered it as well, especially in Canada, where its brutal violence almost did not allow it to be released, and then when it was, it was very limited. In Sweden, they wanted to chop out very lengthy sequences of the violence. They wanted to chop out a total of nine minutes, including the entire centerpiece of the film, the bar full of rednecks whose 
next definitely get redder that would have made the film lose a lot of its impact and the film would have probably made little sense from a story standpoint had they chopped it down at the time of its release it was observed that this was the most violent film ever directed by a woman up to that point and that further triggered a shock value tag to the making of the film it was kind of revolutionary for its type now what was most objectionable however was not that it was violent but that it made the lifestyle of the killers actually alluring. They lived free of morality. They were governed by fulfilling their own lusts, which, when sated, prolongs their lives indefinitely. It was very appealing to be a vampire. However, as Bigelow explores, there's also a loneliness to the life that makes it a fairly wretched existence, and there's a great deal of sadness underneath some of the stories. This is not a judgmental film, but I do think in the end the clan has to deal with allowing another member into their fold that possesses something that they lost long ago, which is a sense of right and wrong. And it is that exploration of the vampire as a native in this western that allows a cowboy, complete with his horse riding and his cowboy hat and his boots, into this tribe of so-called Indians driven by their primal instincts and their celebration of the savageness of the order found within nature. They live beyond the code brought in by the Christian settlers who tamed the wild lands in order to live in their communal belief in only one traditional way of life, full of the expectation of subconscious repression and moral obligation. Now, while the story takes place in a short amount of time, and it's not particularly complicated on top of that, you get the sense that Bigelow's artistic background is in full play here. She applies narrative textures beyond the dense fog and the dangerous plays of light and this cloaking shadow of night to her moving mosaic set to Tangerine Dream's hypnotic and synthesized score, the same way that she might put a picture on the canvas. She allows different viewers to see and to hear and to perceive different things although we all have the same exact vantage point of what's on the screen. And it's for this reason that the film has achieved a strong cult status among those who appreciate films beyond its intended genre. You don't have to be a vampire film lover to come away loving Near Dark for what it actually does within the course of its narrative. I think the popularity of the film and the love for the film among the cinema literate ended up sparking some interest in producing a remake around the year 2006. They were looking into the possibility of redoing this for a more modern audience, one that would probably come to appreciate it because the cinema had changed by that point. But the plans ended up getting canceled in 2008 during the development phase because there were a lot of similarities between Near Dark and the rapidly popular vampire franchise Twilight, which was released in film form in 2008. Now, although vampire flick lovers will likely enjoy Near Dark most, I can attest that this is a film for viewers that usually are not into those kinds of films. The themes underneath are universal. It's about this boy who must choose between family and love and a girl who must do the same in turn, both opting for different conclusions and yet both doing what's right in their own way. Horror junkies are probably already familiar with Near Dark, but for those who typically ignore that section of cinema. I do think that Near Dark proves worth going out of your comfort zone to experience. If you're somebody who's typically averse to these kinds of gory horror films, but you can stomach them once in a while if you feel that they're worth the effort, I definitely do think that Near Dark has more to offer than just prurient interest and gore and jump scares for the sake of jump scares. There's definitely much more going on under the hood than you would suspect. So I really like Near Dark. I actually for a long time have claimed it is my favorite film featuring vampires 
in it. I have to think about it nowadays. I don't know that I ever you know, made a list of my top 10 favorite vampire films, but if Near Dark isn't my favorite, it is very, very close to being my favorite. I'm going to give three and a half stars out of four to Near Dark. I do think that this is a solid movie. It definitely holds up well today. It has a kind of timeless quality to it, with the exception of maybe the Tangerine Dream synth soundtrack. It definitely does not feel like a film from 1987 necessarily. So that's another aspect that I do think bodes well in its favor to become a classic eventually of horror genre cinema. So, three and a half stars out of four goes to Near Dark. Thanks, everyone, for listening. I hope that you enjoyed this review that ends up wrapping up by this Highway to Hell trilogy, these nomadic vampires who are out there roaming the roads. There's hitchhiking in all three of these films. But for the next trilogy of films, I'm going to shift it just ever so slightly with a film that I actually mentioned a couple of times during the review of Near Dark. It came out the same year, just a few months before, and that, of course, is The Lost Boys. Yes, finally getting to The Lost Boys here on Around the World in 80s Movies. That will be the very next film that I cover here. So if you haven't seen it in a while, I do encourage you to go check that out before getting to the next review. Thanks, everyone, for listening. I hope that you enjoyed the review that you heard. If you ever want to reach out to me, I do encourage you to find my contact information. You can go to my website. That's at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net, where you'll also find links to my Twitter feed and Facebook page. You can follow me there and make comments on anything I post there as well. And until next time, thanks everyone for joining me on this trip around the world in 80s movies. Oh,